Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia. I'm Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And I have calmed down a little bit since our last episode. Yeah, just get over it. Yeah, well, I did. Well, more so, um, I'm in love with Joel Neville Anderson and Stephanie Brown, too, myself. Oh, happy day. Yeah, well, Stephanie helped me transcribe interviews for a piece you'll hear in a bit on grad student-run journals later in the podcast. And if any of you have transcribed interviews... You know, this is it's like super fun. It's like it's like peeling potatoes in or the Marines, grapes. you know. Yeah, like it's it's terrible. So she um, very happily took care of that task for me. So thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. And then Joel also inspired that piece, and he also conducted a Cinema Journal Presents interview for us in this episode with June Okada, a professor at SUNY Geneseo and author of the book Making Asian American Film and Video. So got a lot of good stuff from from Joel and others in this episode. Yeah, and it's great to have have the uh, fresh minds and fresh ears and new participants. Exactly. And we've got a new year coming up, a new year of Acamedia, and so we really want to think through some ways we can make Acamedia even better, and so look for that to come. Yeehaw. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's get started then. Joel Neville Anderson making his Acamedia debut. From Rochester, New York, this is Joel Neville Anderson speaking with June Okada. Associate Professor of English and Film Studies at SUNY Geneseo, and author of the new book, Making Asian American Film and Video, History, Institutions, Movements, published by Rutgers University Press this year in 2015. Welcome, Joan. Thanks, Joel. (laughs) So I just wanted to start by asking how you got into the field of Mm -hmm. film media studies. As an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I was an English major and at that time, there was no film major. I think I think now there is, but I don't know. I just you know you just gravitate towards whatever is is in you to to gravitate towards. And I, and I liked I loved cinema. You know even in high school, particularly foreign cinema, and not really having the resources, but but definitely having cable television and pop culture at large. You know being exposed to 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 foreign films, I I just found them much more interesting than than domestic media. And, and that kind of led into reading more about it. And, and then Berkeley obviously has the Pacific Film Archive and just a, many, many outlets for seeing uh, amazing films. And so I would say as an undergrad, I was, I was as, you, as you said previously, radicalized <laughs> to um, art cinema and good films. And, and not just foreign films, I mean, American films as well. And I just kind of stumbled into these film classes in the rhetoric department, and I just kind of fell in love. And I loved just intensely talking about films and, and, and writing about them, kind of analyzing a film. This intellectual exercise was just thrilling to me for some reason, and I, I did it really well, I guess. And, uh, and, then, and, then, and then there was film theory, which was, which was, the, it was the coup de grace, you know, it was the straw that, <laughs> that broke the camel's back, right? Film theory is just kind of like this, I know it sounds horrible and geeky, but it was, it's kind of like a drug, right? You just um, start reading it, and it's more accessible than, I think, some philosophy is, and yet it's, it's, it's still very interesting and engaging and thought-provoking. And so I just, you know, I got, got sucked into this whole film theory. And, and I think a lot of people who are drawn to academia, you know, see the lives of professors from the outside and imagine that it would be like the perfect life. And I think I kind of got sucked into that as well. So I spent a few years after college working in the film industry in Los Angeles. I moved to L.A. And that was kind of a horrible experience. Um, 
and, and you were mentioning working in in film production, yeah. and it's it's very prosaic. It's not intellectual. The films that you get involved in working on are always pretty bad, usually. At the end of the day, if you want to do good work, you have to kind of be independent. You know, when you've been coddled and you're, you know, you just graduated from college, I think many of us are, aren't prepared to become, you know, Werner Herzog, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the academy is a good place um, to channel your, your, your intellectual passions and also be able to be independent, you know, be able to do your own research, do your own writing. And also, your, if your political sympathies, as you were talking about earlier, tend more towards that kind of thing, rather than, you know, the corporate media, then obviously you're, you're just going to go there, right? So I just ended up at UCLA, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, and it was, I applied a, a bunch of places, but UCLA offered me funding and, and the faculty is really great. And I just was interested in doing a project in Asian American studies. At that time, I felt that there was a dearth. Now there are a number of monographs on Asian American film and video, so which, which is great. It's a very, very tiny field, subfield. But I've met a lot of great people in the field, both filmmakers and scholars. And I, I had people at UCLA who were very sympathetic to, to what I wanted to do. Not everybody was, you know, because I think it is, in, in, in some ways, in the mainstream of, of film studies, it's still marginalized. I mean, if you look at SEMS and, you know, just generally, it's it's ethnic studies and media studies, I think, are still somewhat marginalized. Um, but, you know, my dissertation director, Chon Noriega, who does Chicano and Latino media, you know, he, I think I think he completely understood what I wanted to do. And um, so I found my niche there, and uh, I continued with this with this project. And, and I wrote my dissertation, and luckily, I got a publisher, and... There it is. There's the book. (laughs) Okay, great. Happy to have it here. (laughs) Uh, So I also wanted to ask, and this is the first interview I'm actually doing for the podcast, so I'm either too prepared or not prepared (laughs) enough, and we'll find out which one. Uh, And you you write at the beginning of the book that although it's dedicated to uh, members of your family, you say it's ultimately dedicated to filmmakers and media professionals who are the subject of the book and truly inspired me with their dedication to social change through art. And I just feel like that sentiment is uncommon uh, in contemporary times. And I'm wondering how you feel that the potential of cinematic media for social change is regarded in film and media studies at at the moment. I don't think it's very strong. Mm. Social change media right now, I don't think it's very strong. It's, It's even more marginalized than let's say you know race and representation or you know that kind of work, um, social change media is is on a downswing, and I think we're in conservative times, so perhaps that has something to do with it. Uh, I would say earlier on, people were much more interested in it when there were many more video documentaries on public television. Mm-hmm. Documentary filmmakers were being funded more, given more attention. I think I think th- there obviously is a space for that. But in, in terms mm-hmm. of film studies, I don't, yeah, I don't really think there is. But because my work deals with a certain kind of film that's marginalized, I mean, I felt like they were the ones that influenced me, you know, that, that inspired me and their dedication. Because I feel like the aims are the same. You know, these, even though I don't make social change media, by writing about them, and kind of understanding their struggles, I feel like I'm hopefully helping helping their aims. You know, we have the same aims, and, and, and that is to create more opportunities for marginalized filmmakers, get more more representations out there that are not necessarily positive, but, but just um, more diversity, um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So 
I mean, at the end of the day, who am I writing this for? Well, the filmmakers, because I did interview them, and, um, and, and they did have an interest in my getting their stories out in a way, even though they're not their stories, I mean, they're kind of analyses of their work. You know, it's still a, a kind of exposure, and, and by treating it seriously you know, as an important part of the larger dialogue about, about media itself. I've helped them or, or I've created some space, some, some more space um, for this kind of work to be written. So you opened the book establishing this intervention in scholarship within Asian American film and media, situating its complicated relationship with public media as a kind of central thread to understand complex legacies. Uh, this formation as a genre as well as, as a movement. Mm-hmm. And you state that it benefits public media's stance on diversity, from um, the founding of PBS to Formula for Change, Mm -hmm. while transforming Asian American media as a movement and as a genre. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's hard to disagree with this thesis by the end of the text, and it's very compelling. But I'm wondering when you really recognize this as a central thread that could form a meaningful Mm -hmm. um, intervention in the field. In film studies... People like Gina Marchetti, for example, and others have written a lot about race and representation in, in Hollywood and the fact that people of color you know, have historically been completely excluded um, and, or invisible in mainstream Hollywood film and network television. And you know, that's kind of where I started. And doing a little research in the field, I realized you know, that there were filmmakers and there were creative people, actors, um, other people working... In, in media who were Asian American and, and but they weren't you know they weren't working on big productions in Hollywood. They were trying really hard to to make their own work and, and but you know where were they being shown? You know, in community screenings and every once in a while on public television, right? So and many times there were documentaries, you know, short films. And and while doing this research I realized that any kind of media endeavor there has to be some kind of network, right? Because you can't just work in a vacuum. Mm. And I realized that, that this vacuum had to do with public public funding, public media, community-based work, audiences, and centralized in public television and also in these grassroots media organizations like Visual Communications, um, Asian Cinevision. I wanted to, to talk about these organizations as the center for funding, distribution, and exhibition because... That was where it was at, and I felt like there weren't, although there were some books on Asian American film and video, there weren't a lot of works that, that looked at the, the, the system, you know, as it was with film festivals, media, funding organizations, public television, and it, it, is, a, it is a system, right? And, because, and it's partly because these filmmakers are working in a ghetto, and, and in some ways it is, a, it, is, it is a ghetto, right? But it's still a system, a network. So, mm-hmm. so there was no moment but um, realizing that the dearth, the vacuum, and what was going on outside of that, whenever that moment was, when I realized that there was something there with the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In looking at this network, mm-hmm. um, you note that traditional means that have been constructed within film studies to deal with cinema mm-hmm. um, weren't entirely appropriate, yeah, um, yeah. such as spectatorship or looking at phenomenological experience of the film medium or audience studies. Um, I've read some of your other pieces, uh, such as the book chapter, Cultural Odor and the Global Order, Globalization (laughs) and the Race Japanese Body. So I I can see that you're familiar with a lot of those Mm -hmm. methodological approaches. But I'm wondering 
as you approach Asian American media studies and incorporate frameworks from cultural studies and critical race theory and make these questions towards uh, institutional parameters and funding and programming, questions of artistic freedom. I'm wondering how you just approach shifting gears Mm. between a cinema studies scholar as well as someone who's really infiltrating a lot of these industrial and institutional networks. Well, it wasn't easy because, as I told you before, I was seduced by film theory, right? I mean, that's very glamorous. But it's very glamorous in in some ways because you can just do film theory just without really going outside, you know know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of counterintuitive, um, but I realized that, that some of the works in... Asian-American and Asian media studies were more rooted in these classical modes, like spectatorship, right? Like Gina Marchetti's work and, and, and other people. But what I realized with, with my dissertation that I had to try a different method because a fresh method, and that was to actually do a lot of archival research, interview people, do oral histories. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of introverted. So it was hard in writing a dissertation, like, wow, you know, I really need to find a methodology that's not just sitting there watching films and reading, you know, film theory books and going, well, there, there you go. That's what some people do, and some people are brilliant at that. But I realized that in order to really, you know, create new work, create a new pathway, that I would have to go look at these horrible photocopies in some dusty file cabinet in at Asian Cinevision and read it mm-hmm. and analyze it. And, and, and it was really hard. It took, it took a couple of years of trying to get funding myself and, and, and contact people, interview them, record them, mm-hmm. transcribe the interviews. As a grad student, I had to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And then try to thread something, right? Try to, try to thread something. And although it was very hard and counterintuitive, I found it somewhat strangely satisfying. And although I love to just watch a movie and, and, and offer my thoughts on it, you know, I, I, I realized that there's something really satisfying about gathering primary documents and actually talking to the people that no one's really talking to mm-hmm. and then coming up with your own ideas based on this material. You know, it's, it's real research, mm-hmm. which, which I think a lot of people in film studies, in old school film studies, don't really do. And, and a lot of people criticize them for because, you know, I mean, it's not real research, you know, whatever. But yeah, so it was both counterintuitive, but at the end it was very satisfying. And and I have to just kind of credit my dissertation director, Chon Noriega, who really, really pushed, pushed me to do that, pushed us to do that, you know, to go find the actual documents, to go talk to the people as a better way of approaching truth than, than just, just quoting secondary sources, right? Mm-hmm. So it was very hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm also curious about infiltrating these networks mm, because okay. it's a methodological question, yeah. um, but it, also becomes a question of responsibility because yeah. as you you know make clear uh, many of the organizations that you uh, deal with are in a constant state of precarity and the funding mechanisms by which they continue to exist are under threat in different forms um, so I'm wondering how you deal with that critical function um, as well as a sense of responsibility yeah, um, yeah it Something was I asked myself yes yeah. it was it was kind of dicey because you know, when you actually talk to people, you find out they're mercurial and they're human beings with feelings. And of course, I never wanted to, I, I don't want to be controversial or, you know, necessarily spinning something that wasn't there just, just for controversy. I wanted to, to, to give the utmost respect to, to these people that I, you know, that I, I do respect. So, mm. 
it was difficult to, to balance that because in, in some ways I am criticizing these institutions, mm-hmm. right? I am criticizing and asking these questions, you know, why these films, you know, why funding these films? Are these films really that great? Criticizing the institution itself, criticizing the, the, the movement, and mm-hmm. which, which are actually, I'm just kind of echoing some of the things that critics were already saying, right? And, and kind of laying them out in a, in a scholarly fashion so that you can, in an organized way, so that you can kind of historically see what some of the arguments were. Mm-hmm. So I never had any personal stake in going, you know, you know, this is terrible. Or something. But as, as, a, as a scholar, I think I felt I, I needed to kind of just present what was there mm-hmm. and emphasize some of the important argument about the problem with Asian American media, the aesthetics of Asian American media back in the 70s and 80s. Um, mm-hmm. So some people did, when I did publish one of my first articles, I think I did get some people, a person in one of the institutions asked me, well, well, why are you being so critical and being kind of defensive about it? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, and, and then, but it was, it turned out okay. Because mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, I wasn't saying, this is terrible, these films are terrible. I was just kind of laying out the arguments, right? What, and then there, was, there were cases when I interviewed filmmakers and, mm-hmm. and they had a lot to say about institutions too, you know, right. and how to present the story when the filmmakers themselves are critical of the institutions and how to the, present their stories without without hurting anybody or, or making mm-hmm. people mad. But nothing, nothing terrible has happened. I think, I think many people are pretty reasonable. And I think, I think that even though people in, in media institutions are not scholars, so they may not be aware that these arguments have to happen, you know, these criticisms have to happen, um, I think they, they get it. I think they get it. I think that, that you know, books, scholarly books and articles aren't just reports on, on, on how wonderful everything is, right? Mm-hmm. I think it also points to the function that criticism can have on institutions that aren't commercial media. And I I feel like there's a lot of reticence to not apply some of the terms of institutional critique approaching established art institutions for more precarious groups from the 1970s and Mm -hmm. 1980s. So Mm -hmm. definitely a place for generating meaningful discourse. Yes, absolutely. Where it's already um, begun in a a place that maybe the academy isn't paying attention to yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You draw a lot of attention there. With your first first chapter that came from Cinema Journal, Mm -hmm. you meaningfully deconstruct a number of binaries, like I just said, the difference between commercial media, public media, as necessarily being a spectrum within a neoliberal moment, especially, as well as the binaries of experimentation and conventional cinematic practices in uh, gaining access to publics and subcultures. And I'm especially interested in the moments leading up to Wang Wang's uh, fire over water, yeah. transforming into Chan is missing. Mm-hmm. And I love how you take the reaction of audience members or critics describing their reaction as enthusiastic bewilderment. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, which seems very, very appropriate. One of the the threads, especially from this first chapter, and it runs throughout much of the beginning of the book, is the criticism of Daryl Chin, who you get the great, noble, and uplifting, and boring as hell quotation for the title of that article and chapter. So I'm wondering if you could comment on some of the legacies of Daryl Chin's uh, work and Mm -hmm. how it kind of informed and opened up a lot of the Mm -hmm. discourses that were circulating uh, around this time in the late 70s. Well, I think Daryl Chen was a unique voice during that time, very strident, obviously, because he dared to say that some of these Asian American films were not 
aesthetically up to par mm -hmm. in the way that he personally saw needed them to be. Mm -hmm. And and Chen, you know, he I believe he worked for the Village Voice. He worked. I mean, he was a he was a critic outside. He was a theater critic. He was a film critic. He wasn't just in in Asian American media. Right. So he had a foot in 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 both main or regular um, you know experimental avant garde uh, media and theater as well as Asian American. So. So he had this kind of perspective and, you know, he was, he challenged Asian American film and video to be less narrow and, and so focused on, on this kind of um, negative reaction to the lack of positive representations, right, mm -hmm. as, as the only task of an Asian American film and video. So, so he really, you know, he really kind of goaded filmmakers and wanted them to make more challenging work, to be more creative, to be more experimental, mm -hmm. you know, what have you, because they were in the perfect space to, as a marginalized group, they were in the perfect space to, and, and clearly that's why experimental and avant-garde media has always been an important aspect of Asian American film and video. Yeah, he was very vocal about, about it, and I, and I thought it was a, a, an important voice to, mm -hmm. to bring this up, and this tendency for certain Asian American you know, filmmakers not to be challenging is something that Chin found deeply problematic, you know, that because the whole point, you know, was was to kind of fight against this 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 racist institution, right? And and you know, why try to why why reproduce the the same kinds of works that are being produced in the mainstream when when they're 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 deeply problematic. The institution is is, is racist, right? I thought that he was such a unique voice during that era, and, and it needed to be contextualized. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. I'm curious about um, some more contemporary transformations currently within Asian Asian American film and media and as you get uh, to the end of the book I'm really fascinated by where you land in discussing Asian American film and media as transforming from a movement into more of more of a genre, or mm -hmm. leaving leaving behind specific generic traces yeah. that can be com compared to other genre cycles like film noir mm -hmm. that have you know a beginning and an end point yeah. that can be historicized. Mm -hmm. And your work to do that within this text, as you have more reflective works that kind of take on a mockumentary yeah. view mm -hmm. of a lot of the tropes of Asian American film and media, really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So I'm wondering where you see this activity leading towards in contemporary reflections towards that same genre, um, or to take it another direction, kind of new media uh, usages within mm -hmm. the fight for rights and representations mm -hmm. uh, as more of a movement component. Yeah, so much has changed since 2007, mm -hmm. and particularly digital media, and because so much has changed, you know, I, I'm, not an, I'm not the expert person to talk about what's going on there. Um, there are some younger people who are continuing this work, like Vincent Pham and others who, um, who are interested in, uh, in things like in, in the online presence and in YouTube and, you know, independent filmmaking kind of moving online. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there are still feature films being made, and film festivals are thriving, mm -hmm. I would say. But some of the interesting stuff with audiences are, are online. And so you have, you have 
people getting famous on YouTube who are now making, you know, making feature films. And, mm -hmm. and so that's, that's a pathway that I haven't explored in the book and that somebody perhaps else will take on because obviously that online stuff is, is, is going to be an aspect in, in all film and, and mm -hmm. video. So I, I can't really comment too much specifically about that, but I would say, you know, festivals are growing um, becoming definitely more global because populations are changing, obviously, mm -hmm. and and the online presence, particularly YouTube, are, are shifting the way that Asians and Asian Americans are being represented, and also the lives of, of filmmakers themselves. Just to, to wrap up, I'm wondering if there are any new projects that you're interested in. Well, uh, no, Joel, you and I are going to be on a panel at SUS in <laughs> April, oh, in, in March, and um, it has to do with Asian and Middle Eastern 1970s public media. Mm. And um, your work has to do with downtown community television and community media, which I'm really excited to hear. <laughs> and I'm really interested in, in uh, global Asian experimental filmmakers and its history in, in New York. And so I'm working on the Fluxus artist, Nam June Pike, and just looking at the, the reception of his work at the time, and as well as connected to in the Asian American movement and, and representations of Asians in, in art and, and media. So it's, it's related, but... Um, kind of more New York-centered instead of West Coast-centered because I guess I'm now a New Yorker, so, <laughs> or at least a New York State person. I don't know if I'm a New Yorker, but <laughs> a New York Stater. Great. Makes, makes sense to me. So, yeah, from, from yeah. Rochester, New York, it's been great uh, talking to you. Thank you very much, Joel. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>。Thank you so much, Joel. That was a really great start for Acamedia, and this is such important research he dug up in his conversation. What you know, and especially as both a bridge between academia and filmmaking, and also a view into under-researched areas, particularly that nexus between work outside mainstream filmmaking and within a minority culture. So it's really exciting to hear how she's navigated her way through that material. Yeah, absolutely. When I was listening to this, it really reminded me of some of the most important work from earlier generations of film scholarship that showed a similar kind of really dynamic relationship between scholars and and the the filmmakers that the, whose work they're trying to explore. And that one of the most important things that scholars can sometimes do is just draw our attention to really interesting work and open up new ways of thinking about it. Yeah. So for that, we're really grateful. Yeah, and hopefully that inspires some of you out there to uh, think through some of those ideas yourself, um, which is also a theme of the next segment I have which is about grad student-run journals. When we sent out a call for ideas, this is one that came from Joel Neville Anderson, and he himself works on a, a grad student journal. And I was really intrigued. I took up this call because I was intrigued, and especially because I myself, uh, and did you work on it? Yeah, on I did. Yeah, that we worked on um, the Velvet Light Trap back in our University of Wisconsin mm -hmm. days. So I wanted to revisit that and especially think through what are the, um, the kinds of benefits, challenges that come from working on a grad student journal. So I profiled two, two of them here, Invisible Culture and Velvet Light Trap. New Acomedia staffer Joel Neville Anderson suggested we do a segment on graduate student-run journals, and he himself is on the editorial board of one, Invisible Culture, an electronic journal of visual culture, which is run out of the University of Rochester's graduate program in visual and cultural studies. So I decided to start my queries there in investigating what the unique challenges and benefits are of working on a journal that draws heavily from graduate student labor. Invisible Culture is an online journal that publishes two issues a year in an open access format, and it features articles and creative works as well as reviews. 
The journal's website describes the journal's interdisciplinary goal, quote, fostering a global and current dialogue across fields, IBC investigates the power and limits of vision. The journal was founded in 1998 and reformulated in 2012 with a new editorial model. The journal's current managing editor, Victoria Gao, is a Ph.D. student at Rochester, and I first asked her about the place of invisible culture within Rochester's visual and cultural studies graduate program. Most people in our program do tend to contribute in some way as an editorial board member. It's certainly not mandatory for every student that enters our program, and we have a variety of different things that students participate in. We do have, I would say, 90% of the students in our program participating at some point during their graduate career, and we split it up according to each editorial board. Like Every year has different committees that run the logistics of the journal. So we have things like website committee, publicity committee, peer review committee, people who deal with handling the book reviews that come into our website. So it, it gets pretty evenly distributed, so no one person has too much responsibility. The 2012 reformulation specifically moved away from a more individual model where only one person oversaw each entire issue, right down to picking a specific topic for an issue to focus on, and moved toward a more collaborative committee-based model with broader themes for issues. Gao explains. We switched to a model where each issue now has a small committee running it. And so it's usually a group of four or five students who collectively create a theme for the issue rather than a specific topic. And that way we can draw from a larger selection of articles and artworks that are submitted to us. And then that committee writes the CFP. They select which articles and artwork go into publication. They work with the individual authors to get their articles through peer review process. And so in that sense, it's, it's very much a group effort. As Gao mentions, there is a blind peer review stage at Invisible Culture. Submissions are first vetted by the issue student committee. A second internal review is then conducted by additional students on the editorial board. And then anonymized review is provided by the journal's advisory board, made up of tenured or tenure-track professors. But otherwise, the graduate students take on the work of putting the issues together, and Gao stresses that it's their commitment that keeps the journal going. This is all unpaid labor. This is all, I mean, it's entirely voluntary. It's it's something that we keep going because we're passionate about the journal. So just getting that passion conveyed across the different generations of graduate students that come in, I think is probably like the biggest challenge and the most important thing that we have for the sustainability of the journal. The payoff of that passion, Gao told me, is the experience that students gain from being in a unique position to watch the editorial process unfold. I think it's such a great opportunity for graduate students to be able to get that professional experience in as they're still doing their studies. I would say also a big benefit that I didn't realize that came with the journal when I started was that it actually helps my own writing process as well. Um, Just getting familiar with the other side of the editing process, um, seeing sort of really interesting work that people all over the world really are doing because we get submissions from anywhere (laughs) and from any level of like graduate student or faculty member. Those comments really struck me as far as the potential value of getting behind the curtain of publishing for a graduate student. So I wanted to dig deeper into that. And that led me to the premier graduate student-run journal, The Velvet Light Trap, a prestigious print journal that I myself worked on back in my grad school days and that has a very storied legacy going back to the early 1970s. 
The Velvet Light Trap, or VLT, is published by University of Texas Press, whose website describes VLT is collectively edited by graduate students at the University of Wisconsin at Madison and the University of Texas at Austin, with the support of media scholars at those institutions and throughout the country. Each issue provokes debate about critical, theoretical, and historical topics relating to a particular theme. Issues guided by the UW crew, which is based in the Department of Communication Arts, are released in the fall, while the spring issues are from the UT crew, which is based in the Department of Radio, Television, Film. There are a few logistical differences between how the two editorial groups run day-to-day operations, but there are many more similarities, with the basic process being that a few graduate students take charge of a single issue, develop a theme, and call for papers. Additional students help to initially vet submissions, write reviews, and design the issues. And then an editorial board of established tenured and tenure-track scholars provides blind peer review of the submissions. With this, the VLT is run with the same peer review rigor as the top journals in the field, like Cinema Journal itself. Faculty oversight is also provided by primary supervisors at each school, Janet Steiger at UT and Derek Johnson at UW. To learn more about life on the VLT, I spoke with two grad student editors from UW, Caroline Leader and Derek Long, who have been the chief coordinating editors on recent issues, and also two grad student editors from UT, Colleen Montgomery and Mike O'Brien, who hold the titles of co-coordinating editorial chairs for UT's recent issues. All of them stressed one key thing when I talked to them, the benefits of running the journal as a collaborative effort. Mike O'Brien says he appreciates the discussions that come from that circumstance. You know, a lot of the value for the journal has been pure collaboration. So getting into those small groups is nice because everyone's read the pieces and you have, you know, you have pretty engaging conversations with your group members about them. Both Leader and Long also stress the valuable experience that comes from overseeing such collaborative discussions. Here's Caroline Leader. I think as graduate students for all of us, Because we make our mark in the field with a lot of single authorship work, this is just a different process in general. This is very much a group endeavor. This is something where your creative stamp or your scholarly stamp is is not what will be put into this issue. This is something you have to manage. This is something you have to negotiate with a team. And so it's a very different style of behavior for graduate students who are so often siloed in their own work. This is something we have to make together. So I think that is the major challenge and really the major benefit. I think we're on training ground right now for what we will have to do in the future. Having to negotiate those relationships is really, really valuable. That notion of how working on the journal can help bring social benefits for graduate students also resonated across the group. Leader further explained. I always feel that in academia we get stuck in our niches or small groups And I think that especially grad students who are less obligated to do service and service work and administrative work early on, we don't always come into contact with the larger body of students even. So our our main conferences, of course, have now reached a scale that we're not necessarily attending our own colleagues' panels. So VLT to me is a fantastic way to find out what everyone's doing, what they're working on, what their expertise is. Uh, and I'm a very interdisciplinary scholar. I always keep my ears open for new influences. And if I'm not hearing from my colleagues, I'd kind of be concerned my, my work would falter or get a little lost. So it's inspiring for me to be around experts in this kind of scenario. UT's Montgomery and O'Brien agree that working on the journal opens up their graduate school experiences to even counteract the possible isolation of dissertating. You know, working in sort of an academic setting with your peers towards like an objective that is academic in nature, this kind of, you know, adds another dimension towards sort of the graduate experience as opposed to just kind of working on your own work. You know, you're kind of uh, putting something together that's kind of good, hopefully, for the greater community. 
Yeah, I think it's instructive to thinking about yourself because the dissertation can be so isolating. Um, so to think of not just how you know, you're contributing to the field in terms of your own research project, but how you're part of a larger intellectual community working on the journal really helps make that clear. UW editor Derek Long similarly appreciates how he can expand his knowledge through working on the journal. Every issue is different. Uh, depending on what the call is, it exercises different parts of your scholarly brain. Uh, it encourages you to become conversant in fields of study you may not have been interested in initially, or you may have had only a cursory kind of knowledge of. Even if you aren't reading a submission, just hearing readers talk about a submission in our editorial meetings can spur a newfound scholarly interest, or uh, it might direct you to scholarship you hadn't heard of before. Um, again, as a resource for your own work, if for nothing else. I think it's, it's a great way to stay aware of the wider contemporary field, especially at this stage in our careers where we're constantly having to drill deep into a fairly restricted subfield of study as part of our dissertations um, and so forth. And I think just being a part of that process improves your own work because you're envisioning what you might say about your own work. If you were reading it as a submission in, a, in an editorial meeting, you become conscious of the other end of that communication process, right? What, what a reader might take from this. And so that's the real, in bringing all the challenges together, the real challenge, I think, is viewing the process not as, not as just some work or not as just some line on the CV, but as an opportunity for self-improvement, right? And an opportunity to develop your own sense of the field. That notion of how working on the journal illuminates the publishing process for students also came across strongly in my conversations with these editors. Leader stressed that reading submissions helps her recognize the importance of core aspects, like papers having a clear focus thesis. And Montgomery indicated that one of the most rewarding parts of working behind the scenes at a journal is being involved in the production of exciting original research that's growing the field. Derek Long also sees that role as highly rewarding, and he values the chance to participate in the ritual of productive feedback about scholarship and progress. I would say that because we are ourselves trying to get published and to professionalize, um, we have something of a unique perspective on the on the peer review and publication process when we're on kind of the other side of that. <laughs> I, I think as a result, one of the things we've uh, always tried to emphasize in our editorial meetings is the quality of feedback that we give to our submissions, and especially to those submissions that we don't end up publishing. Um, I've always thought of our editorial work as not only being in the service of the final issue, but as helping to foster just good writing, good research, and good argumentation in the field as a whole. High-quality feedback, I think, is an important part of that. I mean, I think we, we all can sort of relate to the frustration of submitting to a journal and then just getting a sort of outright rejection without any kind of feedback or explanation or, you know, tips for improvement. And so in trying to provide that for all of our submissions, I think not only does it help us to professionalize, but it helps people who, all, all of the folks who are submitting to the journal uh, to improve their own practices when it comes to, to producing scholarship. UT's Montgomery and O'Brien also explained that working on the VLT helps them better appreciate why quality, peer-reviewed publishing can be such a long process. I think what's nice about working with a print publication sort of that has a long process like the Velvet Light Trap is that unlike something like Flow or Antenna, you don't have a sort of rapid publication schedule. 
So you can allot certain portions of your time over the course of a month where you're going to have a lot of intensive work, but it's not kind of a daily commitment necessarily. Um, but I think the benefit of that too is that you also get to see, first of all, why publishing, print publishing can take so long, but the benefits of that process. And I find it really illuminating to see how pieces change over the course of that process. And it's helped me think of publication, first of all, sort of demystified it, made it a little less scary. It's made me think of it in terms of a process, because even pieces that we don't accept get a lot of useful feedback from peer reviewers. Um, so it's made me less hesitant to submit my work. It's part of just a larger process of working on your research and developing it. As a final point of reflection, I was curious about what each editor saw as at the core of what keeps the VLT going year in, year out, graduate class in, graduate class out, as one of the top journals in the field. Montgomery and O'Brien pointed out that having an infrastructure and best practices in place that carry over from year to year has been crucial to the VLT's long history. I think it's so a matter of both having written practices that we hand down from one generation of students to another, um, but also learned practices through a process of mentorship that we get to pass on to new editors as people move through the program because it is such a collaborative process. Yeah, and I think our internal advisory board, you know, Janet's very, very committed to the journal, obviously. Um, these people have been around UT for a fair amount of time, so they've gone through a lot of cycles of BLT, so if we, you know, if we have any questions, they're very, very available to help with that, and just that mentorship thing, you know, I think this is my fourth year, this is Colleen's fifth year, and we have people who've been in it longer than us that, you know, have seen multiple issues come out, so uh, there's a lot of resources. Derek Long also praised the quality of faculty involvement for keeping continuity and editorial guidance consistent. That's one of the things that, that really distinguishes the VLT as a journal. Um, you know, it's easy to think of it as purely a sort of grad student run journal and in a kind of administrative and editorial process sense, that's correct. But we have a fantastic board of faculty readers who is, is an invaluable resource. I mean, um, I, I think the quality of, of our faculty board is as high as any other uh, kind of top shelf journal. But Long also praised the students for their dedication. You know, if I can toot the UW-Madison and UT Austin horns just a bit, I think it's, I think it's also because we have great people reading these submissions to begin with. Um, the fact that people participate in BLT in a sustained way year after year, um, it, it builds up a, a pretty solid base of people who know the ropes, not only of the scholarship, but of the process of bringing submissions to publication, such that you know, when it comes time to elect new coordinating editors, these people will be folks who've written reader letters or have written book reviews or who have helped shepherd articles from initial submission to revision to publication. And so there's a kind of, there's an institutional memory that gets built up and a set of best practices um, that we've kind of, we've worked out over, over the years. And there have been many years for VLT and those best practices. In fact, Colleen Montgomery noted an upcoming milestone. We're coming up on our 80th issue, and we've bandied about the idea of doing some sort of retrospective of important articles that have been published in VLT, or interviewing past editors who've worked on it and who now are in various other stages of their career, which I think would be kind of a helpful project to see how, how it's developed. Because there are so many sort of institutional connections, people who've worked at UW and at UT on the journal, who've maintained contact and who have this memory of the journal that it would be nice to sort of record. 
While that is in the VLT's future, Montgomery and O'Brien wanted to make sure people knew about its present. The call for papers for issue 79 on serials, seriality, and serialization. Proposals are due January 15th. Look for a link on our website. Meanwhile, the UW crew led by Carolyn Leader is hard at work putting together issue number 78 on kids media, which you can look for next fall. And while you await those issues, you can check out the current issue, number 76, which Derek Long and his UW ComArts companions helped put together on case studies in technological change. That's available in print or on Project Muse. You can also check out the latest issue of Invisible Culture, courtesy of managing editor Victoria Gao. That is on their website. The theme is Blueprints. We'll put a link to that on the ACA Media website. And hopefully graduate students will continue to benefit for many years to come at UW, UT, Rochester, and the many other schools that give graduate students the opportunity to capitalize upon this unique professionalization experience. Good stuff. Thanks for doing that piece, Chris. Yeah, it was really fun to talk to the students. Yeah, those are, you know, those those kinds of journals are really an incredible resource for they're 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 useful for the field, but they're also really great training grounds for for the scholars who work on them. Yeah, and let me say, I actually went in and conducted interviews with a few other journals. So, for instance, the blog Antenna, and then also the undergraduate journal Film Matters. And basically, I got so much good stuff that I wanted to separate those out into a different segment. So, um, the Film we'll Matters have more one. Soon. Yes, exactly. So that was merely part one of our look at student-run journals. Um, so next month, we'll bring you. A look at the undergraduate journal Film Matters and some, found some really fascinating issues there about, there it's a different scenario, it's not necessarily professionalization, but the kinds of benefits that come to, to undergraduates and then to professors working with undergraduates on a journal are really illuminating. So you'll get to hear that next month. Yeah, those kinds of relationships are, are incredibly important. You know, I, I worked on VLT just a bit um, when I was in grad school at, at University of Wisconsin, but then also... Got to be on the other side of things at UT, um, occasionally doing you know doing some VLT work, but also with Flow. Those kinds of student-run projects can be really, really terrific um, opportunities for students to develop relationships with faculty, for them to have opportunities to to talk to scholars in the field as peers and not just as students. They're, they're really, really important. Mm-hmm. And I think they offer a lot to the the field in general and um, and. Some, some of the best work in our field has been published in student-run journals. Yeah. We've got one last bit of fun for you before we go, and this is courtesy of a really amazing experience I had last month at the Peabody Archive. I'm at, jealous. Yeah, at the University of Georgia. This was a conference. The title of, well, I don't know what you would call it, a workshop. I've never been anything like this, so I don't know that we have a word. But it was titled Television, the Peabody Archives, and Cultural Memory. So the director of the Peabody Archives, Jeffrey Jones, invited a group of scholars, maybe there were 15 of us, I think, to the archives. Ethan Thompson was already there. He'd been working that semester at UGA in the Peabody archives and basically came up with a uh, day's worth of screenings uh, for us to watch from the Peabody archives. And this was mainly local television and network affiliate television from the 60s and 70s, a little bit from the 80s. We got 10-minute clips of each uh, bit, and it was absolutely illuminating. And it's just the kind of material you don't ordinarily get to see. And it really opened up my eyes to, uh, first of all, of course, this historical content that has 
you know, gone on watch, but also the importance of the archive and archiving this material and, and making it available to researchers. And so um, I wanted to give you a little bit of a firsthand description from people who were actually there of this experience of the Peabody's Conference. And by the end of it, everyone was completely exhausted and very few people wanted to talk to me. But I did <laughs> find four uh, scholars who were happy to talk to me about what their takeaway was from the archival experience, from watching this material, from learning about what the Peabody Holdings are. So we're going to play these four comments from you. In order, you will hear from Eric Hoyt, Derek Compare, Deborah Jaramillo, and Jason Mattel. So for me, the really revealing thing about being here at the conference has been seeing so much great public affairs programming on the local level and local commercial level. So these weren't public educational TV-oriented stations. These were network affiliates that were doing really ambitious, interesting programs uh, about their community, exploring issues like race and sexuality and gender. And uh, it's clear that there's a drop-off in that starting in the, the 80s and continuing through the, the 90s and today. And that's something I've, I've gotten really interested in trying to explore more. Why was this such a, a, a present form of media and why has it disappeared? For me, the conference highlighted how an intense deep dive into relatively uncharted waters can yield some productive discussions and insights about media history. Uh, it was a unique opportunity, one that's unlikely to come up in the same way again, and it was particularly valuable for that reason. I also appreciated the focus on the more meta aspects of archival work, the discussions about how materials are stored, cataloged, and accessed, and uh, this included a tour of the vault and the format migration facilities, which I found really interesting. Too often we take all that for granted in our uh, archival and historical work, but uh, the practices of archiving themselves are absolutely instrumental in how we can even attempt to understand the past. I have many takeaways from the weekend, but I'll narrow them down to two. Uh, first, I was honestly surprised to find legitimately radical programming on local stations. What a difference uh, between the network's turn to relevance in the 1970s and the local station's pretty intimate engagement with progressive politics. Uh, my second takeaway is the absence of Latinos and especially Mexican-Americans in the programs we watched particularly given the focus on the smaller markets rather than the usual big cities. I'm interested to find them in the archive, particularly in the shows submitted by Texas stations. You know, the erasure of Mexican-Americans from the history of this country is fascinating. We're situated as perpetual immigrants and not as early settlers of the region that became the U.S. Southwest. So I want to know if that erasure is reinforced by the types of programs submitted to the Peabody's. For me, the big takeaway from this conference was a sense of humility about being an expert in television. I certainly consider myself someone who writes about a wide range of American television in terms of genre, narrative, industry, audience. But when you see the range of television that the Peabody has in its collection, you realize how little we actually know about what television is at any given moment in any given place. Television is such a huge and almost infinite range of shows, productions, industrial structures, audience formations, communities, and what we consider to be television, what we teach in our classes and what we write about is a tiny little narrow slice of that. So it was really both gratifying and a little bit overwhelming for me to watch so much television from a range of perspectives and uh, sources 
and then realize how little I actually know about and how little I actually study. And hopefully that'll change the way in which I talk about, talk about it with my students um, and in my writing. Obviously, there's no way that any one person can claim expertise over this wide range. So I think what it requires is us to be a little bit more humble, a little bit more modest in our claims, and to always remember that there's a much broader context of the medium out there that we might consider. Wow, that sounds like so much fun. It really was amazing. And especially a lot of this material, as you got a sense from those comments there, was I was just blown away by how ambitious, innovative, challenging this material was, and in particular content, you know, like a civil rights roundtable on local television, the kind of stuff you're just not going to see on local television today. And it also, I'll just add my takeaway then, it it, it's going to fundamentally change how I teach our history of television class here at Notre Dame. I, I realized my history of TV class is basically history of network television. And I work local mm-hmm. TV in there, here and there. And of course you have to, to talk about how it works, but I don't show anything local aside from some occasional clips. Mm-hmm. Now I've got some of this Peabody material I can bring into class and it's really going to change the way I teach the you know, the history and legacy of American broadcasting. And in particular, one thing that strikes me, there's all these conversations about how we're in this golden age of television. Well, if you look at local television or local news, the stuff I was seeing in the 60s and 70s, that was ambitious, innovative, progressive, in a way local TV isn't now. In listening to these clips, I was reminded of something that I did in class the other day. I, and this was totally a, something I prowled, I like stole off, Facebook, off, off, a, off the Facebook feed of... of some friend of ours, I'm not even sure who. Um, but Conan O'Brien a couple of years ago did this really great montage piece that was of like Christmas, some kind of Christmas story that was on local news. Um, this was, it was a couple of years ago, but if, you know, it's of course getting circulation again today. And it is dozens of local TV news running exactly the same story. Oh yeah. You know, so it's, mm-hmm. um, over and over and over and over again, all in the in the in what is essentially a simulation of local news. And yeah. of course, you know, it was a Conan O'Brien sketch, and so it was mostly just played for comedy. But if, but it was also kind of a, a really interesting intervention in media criticism, mm-hmm. because you know, if you if you stop and and kind of pull back from it, you have to start to wonder why is it that all of these stations are running this same stupid, stupid, stupid banal story about like buying presents for yourself? Yeah. And of course, if you take you know twelve seconds and look up the stations whose bugs are at the bottom of the screen, you realize that they're all owned by Sinclair, mm. and they are essentially simulated local news in the in the sense that you know this is not original content; it is just kind of happy talk filler. Um, and we're actually pretty good at having a conversation about what's happened with corporate conglomeration on the radio side yeah. because we um, you know, we recognize how, how mostly bad all of that kind of clear channel commercial broadcasting is. But local TV is suffering too. And so it's really great. This is a long-winded way to say it's really great to, to go back and rethink some of our kind of old chestnuts about 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 the history of TV. Yeah, yeah, I think it's inspiring to, I, I, you know, I can't wait to get back to the Peabody archives. And this is part of this this workshop. It's actually a two-parter, so we're all going to 
go off to our little corners of the world and write something about what we saw or additional content that we are going to research at the Peabody Archives. And then there will be a conference at UGA next November where we will all deliver our material and kind of share our insights. Wow, this is so great. Yeah. Such a great historiographic intervention. Yeah, and let me throw in one. There's, there was also some interesting network content, and we, we got to see a clip from the NBC executive who coined the phrase least objectionable programming, mm-hmm. and he explained why he you know came up with this and why it worked. And so I'm going to pluck out that particular clip and post it on Critical Commons because I know every single history class in the country wants to have the guy talking about least objectionable programming. So um, we'll get that online and and link to that from our website, acum-media.org. Excellent. Excellent. You can also find us on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Yeah, that is new news. We are up on SoundCloud now, so if you prefer that as a place to listen to your podcast, head to SoundCloud. And also, speaking of iTunes, it's possible to post reviews there, and we invite you to post reviews of us. And if we don't like what you say, then we'll just kind of do a Yelp intervention and go in and edit them out. Exactly. We'll I'm do sure what we, we I'm sure we have that power. <laughs> right. But please, too, uh, we want as many people as possible to be able to hear us who might benefit from all this information. So post some reviews up on iTunes. Well, thank you so much to everyone who helped out on this episode. So thank you, especially Joel Neville Anderson and Stephanie Brown, the newcomers who are already uh, having a big impact on what we're doing here. Yes, indeed. And of course, we are also grateful to our other co-producers, Bill Kirkpatrick down at Denison University and Todd Thompson, who makes it all sound good, down at uh, down in Austin. And thank you to all the participants, so June Okada and all of the folks involved in the VLT and the uh, Invisible Culture. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the DERF Fund at Denison University. And thank you to SEMS for helping fund our efforts as well. Have a great holiday break. We'll be back in January. Um... We'll see you in 2016. Yeah, we're, our brains are dead now. I'm sorry. 